The Bible is filled with, uh, the New Testament in particular, filled with lists. And some of you know how much I love these lists of words, I guess. I've come to figure that out, that I like the lists of words. But then there's other passages, other concepts that are kind of linked together, and you see groups of these kinds of things in the Bible. One of these concepts is the laying aside things. And there's several things that we're told to lay aside. And it's really the same concept as we see putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Now, a lot of Christianity, and I don't want that to be necessarily the whole focus this morning, but a lot of us are good at figuring out stopping doing certain things. We make ourselves a list of things we're going to stop doing, and if we do that, that means we're a good Christian. That isn't true. That's a great fallacy. Uh, there are other fallacies that keep you from becoming a Christian, but one of the fallacies that about being a Christian is if you just stop doing certain things, you'll be a good Christian. The New Testament doesn't teach that at all. In fact, it presents a different picture that being a Christian is about not only taking things off and putting things aside, but then putting things on that are good. Now, we're going to focus this morning on the laying aside, but you'll see as we talk about these two things, the relationship that takes both these things to be successful in Christ. I've seen Christians who just stop doing things and they're very proud of all the things that they don't do and that they don't believe. And oftentimes, nothing is 100% in the world except that. Only one thing is 100% in the statement that there's nothing 100%. If you get what I drift, you get in these logical whirlwinds there. But oftentimes, those kinds of Christians are very bitter. They're unloving. They have very little compassion. And they don't, they just don't motivate anybody else to be a Christian because they're so negative and they're just about what they don't do. It doesn't work. Now we need to be strong on things that we don't do and we don't believe in, we don't practice. But we have to be just as strong, if not stronger, on the things that are right, the things that are good. So let's just start. There's two or three passages I want to look at. There are three main scriptures this morning. It's very simple that we'll look at and kind of take a look at the thoughts. I think they're kind of things you can understand without a lot of, uh, you know, analysis on them almost. But let's just go first to James 1, where James here says that we're to lay aside some things and then receive some things. He says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is a maybe the most generic of these three things I want to look at this morning. It's a basic statement. So laying aside, and I'm not going to go into the Greek word, but it really just means to, to take off and put down. It, it, it had the idea of just putting something down, setting it down over here out of the way, and sometimes the idea of standing it up over there, take it over here. Or it had the idea of something that was standing, you just lay it down, put it over here, get it out of the way. It's in your way, you move it out of the way. So that's what the mean, and it's a very broad word. It's used all throughout you know, the Bible, a Greek culture of laying something aside. So he says about this, it isn't laying aside a physical thing, but it's all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Filthiness. I wonder I wonder today in the United States of America in 2022, I wonder just what the culture would call filthy. I know there are filthy things because the Bible says there are right here for one place. But what would the culture call filthy? You think the movies that we, that they put out of Hollywood, that you, they would call any of those filthy? Well, you know, they wouldn't, except that they would wink and say, 
that's why I did it so you'll go see it because we know it's filthy, but we're not going to ever call that because that would be judgmental. But there are filthy things. And according to the Christian worldview, yes, plenty of things are filthy. That means dirty and not just a little bit of soiling that is accidental or something like that. To be filthy, and my mother would call me and my brothers filthy when we came in from playing outside in the mud all day because it was ground in and it was to the bone. She'd basically have to hose us down first then put us in the bathtub because we're so dirty. You get filthy working on cars and it's ground in. It's something that's more than just a little accidental dirt. And there are things that people get involved in that become filthy to their soul. They're dirty. And when a person has any clarity of thought about it in, in, in their own mind, maybe sometimes those moments of self-reflection, they can see that what they're doing isn't right. It's filthy. And that's why they try to hide it. You know, if it wasn't so filthy, they wouldn't try to hide it. But we try to hide things, and society tries to hide them. And then they try to show them secretly to you, but there are many of things that are filthy. And then he talked about the overflow of wickedness. This is not just, I'm not, I'm not sure what the King James says there. Superfluity of wickedness or something like that. I can't remember what the word is. Excess of wickedness. Yes. Uh, there are two words here. This isn't one word. It describes, uh, uh, yeah, naughtiness. And naughtiness doesn't work in our culture. Naughty means, you know, just a bad little thing here. Uh, you did, you, you put a thumbtack on your, you know, somebody's seat in the schoolroom and so you're a naughty boy. That's not what this, nobody ever did that? Put a piece of gum where people say, you know, anyway. Not saying I did, but I heard about it before. Naughtiness. But this is not, not, this is way worse than that. This means, uh, this is cockia, wickedness, badness, that's overflowing. It's always something else. And I just love it. You see this, I've seen it all my life. This, this trend in the way that the, the tip of the, the tip of the spear in our culture is always talking about pushing the envelope. Aren't they? This movie pushes the envelope. What do I mean by that? Well, it's an overflowing of wickedness. It's wickedness filled to the top, and now you keep filling a little bit. But the next movie, we're going to put a little more in than the last guy. We're going to fill it up until it overflows more than the last guy, and that's why you should come and see this. That's why you should get involved in this, because we're pushing the envelope on this one. And this is the appeal that's made to us and our sensibilities. The Bible says that when it comes to wickedness, we should be overflowing with goodness and with righteousness and with generosity, kindness, not with wickedness. But there is that which appeals to the human mind, human mind and sensibilities of, yeah, it's just over the top. Isn't that what over the top means? Overflowing? That's the very definition of the, that's the meaning of the picture of over the top. Overflowing. And he says, as a Christian, lay that desire aside. Lay that idea in your mind that that's a paradigm you should shoot for. To be, to be interested in or desire that which is overflowing with wickedness, more so than the last thing. Christians got to get rid of that. You got to be away from the common culture, away from your neighbors and friends. Sometimes with that attitude, you've just got to be different and lay it aside. And instead of that, doesn't just leave you there because that's not good enough. 
And I use this when I talk about this subject so much, the parable uh, uh, story of Jesus. I think it's in Matthew 12. I didn't put it up here. Where he says a, a, a woman cleaned her house and swept out the demon that was in there, as it were. And when the demon left, she kept cleaning and cleaned out the whole house. And, and when he came back, he found it all swept and clean and seven more demons moved in. So if all you ever do is stop doing bad things, pretty soon you'll find seven more demons living there. It's not good enough just to empty the house because the human soul isn't meant to be empty. You've got to replace it with something. And that's true of whatever sin that you're trying to beat, you have to replace it with something that is good. You have to replace it with something else that will fill you up whether it's the right thing or something, some other thing that will fill you up. And this is something you got to teach your children too, that they need to fill up the things that they, they're things that they can't do because of being your children, unfortunately. My kids face that. There are things they couldn't do because they were my children. Not because they were a preacher's kid so much, but because they were my children and my crazy ideas. They weren't allowed to do certain things. And so, um, I tried to do, show them other things they could do that were good. Sometimes it works. It's a good idea. It's the right thing. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because we live in a world that's broken and things don't work as they should because the world's broken. But that doesn't mean you throw away the right idea just because it doesn't work all the time. And in this case, you you replace the things you have to stop doing, this attitude of overflowing of wickedness, this appeal of that which is filthy and secretive and hidden, you receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, the, the, it's important to receive it. I, I would say if I was going to analyze the import of this, the actual thought behind this, I would say that the meekness is the big word here. To me, the meekness is the big word. Because the other things involve human pride. The overflowing of weak, uh, wickedness and filthiness, the, those appeal to human pride. They appeal to the human heart and its desire to have its way. And we get caught up in the, the secretiveness and the wickedness and how over the top things are. All, we get caught up in that because of our pride. And you can see it in the culture. They're proud and they bragging about being over the top. That's the appeal of it. He says the opposite of that is meekness. And so you, re- you have to receive God's word with meekness. You can receive Hollywood with all the pride you want. You can receive the common culture and the political discussion with all the pride you want because that's the way it's meant to be received. But if you want to receive God's word, you have to receive it with meekness. It won't go in any other way. It won't fit in any other way. Because meekness is that attitude of a lack of self-importance. A lack of, it's the idea of not having to have your way. And meekness, and the some versions say engrafted word. So it's the idea that the word doesn't didn't naturally dwell in your heart, but you've grafted it into your heart, so that the word of God is hooked in, tied into your heart, and you're received with meekness. And when you do that, that's able to save your soul. Receive this word. So that's a generic thing. Receive God's word with meekness. Some people receive God's word, but with, still with pride. And you see this all over the place. When I mean broad in the broad sense, these. Churches that are redefining all the words that they used to use, they're redefining everything, and you know, and, and because they're not receiving the word with meekness. But you need to receive it individually, personally, as meekness. Now, then, the, another passage this is used. I want to get bogged down there. Is here in Hebrews twelve, verse one. A lot to be 
said here, but he says first he says lay aside something and then run, meaning live. He pictures being surrounded by witnesses. Um, there's a lot to discuss about this. It's it's really the picture of a sports stadium with a whole crowd of people that are watching the competition. Except in this case, in the context, the ones that are watching the race have already raced themselves. They've been in the race. And many of them have been actual witnesses. In the New Testament, the word for witness is the word martyria, or versions of that. We get the word martyr from that. A martyr was a witness. And they came to mean not just somebody who's, who witnessed for Jesus Christ and testified for him, but then paid the price of being put to death for that testimony. So it finally came to be a martyr, came to be someone who was actually killed for being a Christian. This probably just means someone who has witnessed the race or, uh, as, a, as a participant in the race, and now they're a witness as a spectator of the race. They witnessed what was going on in the race because they ran it, and now they're in the stands watching you run the race. That's the picture here in Hebrews 1. And he says, therefore, it's also ironic, I noticed all these paths I'm going to use, they all start with the word therefore. When you see therefore, as the old saying goes, it's very old, therefore is very corny. When you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Right? And that what that they say. Uh, why is the word therefore there? It means that there's something before that that you should really consider because this is the conclusion of the stuff that was before. Now, we're not going to take the time to go look at that, but you should. In this case, he says, since we are surrounded... Now, what's gone before this is that whole list in chapter 11 of all the people who lived by faith, who did what God said in spite of what they wanted, and they paid a dear price for doing what God said, following his word. They were they lived by faith. Living by faith isn't just having nice thoughts about Christ and saying you believe. It's actually doing what Christ says, and it will cost you to do that. So therefore, he says, since that's true, that you have to live by faith, and you might pay a heavy price, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, he goes on to say. I put all that up there, but you can read. This is a great passage. I only wanted to look at this focus on this one part. He tells us here, and we get caught up in the cloud of witnesses and what the race is and all the other stuff, but he's, his main, the main points, the verbs are lay aside and then run. Lay aside, take it, take it from here, set it over there out of the way. Move it out of your way so you can do something. You can't run when you have stuff on the track, when you have stuff with you. And what we're to lay aside specifically is two things. I think they're the same thing, but he mentioned them too. The weight and the sin. We have to lay them aside. Now, sometimes athletes train with weights on them so that they can get themselves stronger for the actual competition. They'll throw a baseball that's twice as heavy as the one that they're going to throw in the game and stuff like this to train themselves with weights. Before that, and maybe he, maybe he means that. This word onkyos in Greek is an interesting word, and I, from what I've read uh, a long time ago about it, some old commentators and so forth thought that this word here was really referring to the mask that people wore in acting, and they had to lay that aside to be themselves. 
In other words, what they said, the weight that we have to lay aside is, is pride, human pride. We have to lay that aside to run this race. Human, the will to have your way. That's the flesh as I often define it. That will to have your way, we have to lay that aside and to be able to run this race. But I'll tell you this, whatever it is that's weighing you down from becoming a Christian that can live by faith, that desires to do this, you need to lay it, learn to lay it aside. And so, before you become a Christian, sometimes people think that there are things they think there are things that hinder them and they think they won't be able to overcome it. People say, well, I can't give up having a drink now and then. And if I become a Christian, I want to have a, I want to have a drink now and then. And then they become a Christian. They find out it's not a problem at all. They never even look back. It never bothers them at all. Other people still struggle. Don't get me wrong. But there are things that once you decide to run the race, you find out that the weight that was hindering you isn't so bad. It's not, not a hindrance like it used to be because of your love for Christ and other motivations. Other things still plague you, and you don't ever know which one it's going to be. Usually this, the problems that we have after we've been a Christian for a while are almost always the same ones we've always had. Same ones we've always had. We don't usually develop new sins, brand new out of nowhere. We don't usually develop brand new temptations. They may finally take root and form and come out, but even the temptations we now experience that seem new are probably rooted in what's always been there all along. We just haven't recognized them or the soil's not been correct for them to grow in us. So we have to realize it's just you. It's just you. And that's good and bad. And so the sooner that you can begin to recognize what it is that you are about, what motivates you for good or for bad, you can begin to conquer it talked about this before, but if I were to ask you what's your greatest weakness, I think most of you might struggle with, well, well it is my, what is my weakness? What is my greatest weakness? You might struggle with that a little bit to put that in words. I can tell you somebody who knows what it is. I know somebody who knows what it is. That's Satan. He already knows what it is. You don't because you haven't been paying attention. You keep giving it in, in so much you don't realize how weak you are, but there it is. And there, and you have that problem. I, I found this out, for example, as a, probably a poor illustration. When I, um, when I fell and damaged the shoulder real badly, had to have surgery on this on this rotator cuff surgery on this left side, which I use all the time for most things. Which I didn't think I was hurting before, but once I got that surgery and got this one to stop hurting, I found out how much this one hurt. <laughs> and I ended up having surgery on this one because it was torn too, and I didn't know it. Because I'd been covered up. And so sometimes we live life and when Christ takes away some of the noise, we say that our real weakness gets exposed. And it's still there. It's probably been there all along. But let's lay aside that weight. And then the sea, this goes with the sin which so easily ensnares us. Uh, I did some sermons a couple years ago, two or three you can come up, called uh, Besetting Sin. The sin that, as the King James says, so easily besets us. And there have been a lot written over the centuries about besetting sin. I don't know how, grammatically whether this is talking about a specific sin that he says that you like to commit, you personally like to commit, that you're besetting sin, or whether it just means that sin itself in general way besets us. It's all To beset us here or, or that ensnares us is to build a trap around. It's the idea of putting stakes around something and trapping it in. 
So we all have these things, maybe different from one person to another, that are snares that catch us and trap us in. They might not trap somebody else, but they trap you in. And they're besetting, and that's what I was talking about a moment ago. They don't go away. It's always going to be there. If you are tempted to sexual sin, you are always going to be tempted to sexual sin until you find some ways to sort of conquer that. And in conquering that, you're going to find out that that temptation may flare up in some other way because that's not the, that's not the real problem until you begin to deal with what that really is. And, and we haven't got time to talk about that, but but this is the sin which is besetting to us. If you have a problem with intoxication in a general way, do you ever notice that people who give up drinking sometimes smoke like chimneys? Oh, I've seen this. Relative of mine was trying to beat a real bad drug addiction. Go to the meetings, and when he opened the door to go into the meeting, the smoke would literally billow out of that place where they're having this meeting. He said, yeah, it's amazing. All those people trying to give up drugs, they're smoking like chimneys in there. And he says, they eventually have to beat that too because that leads them right back into it. But it's better than the cocaine because it's the same sin. And, it, and the same sin, these sins have the same root cause in your character or in your life. And some damage has been done to you or that you've done to yourself. And until you go and look at those, you don't find out what they are. But this is why, and you can go listen to the sermons on the besetting sin. You'll see more about that. This is why that he says you've got to run with endurance or patience. You, you just got to keep at it. You've just got to keep at this problem, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. When you, you say, well, I've got to get rid of all my sin before I become a Christian. Well, you can try that or you can just repent. Repent which means to turn to Christ, to turn away from it, and start there with the best you got and keep going. And you'll find out this, he's talking to Christians here. And he's telling these Christians they've got to fight this sin. So the idea that once you become a Christian, you hear this popular, once you become a Christian, sin's not a problem anymore. I don't find that in the New Testament at all, but that's what's being taught today in modern denominations. Now Peter says it this way, you lay aside something and you learn to desire something else. So here's this laying it down and then the other thing, the desire. So we've seen in each case, therefore, he says, here's that therefore, what's it therefore? You see the same thing, the laying, the lay, the therefore, the laying down and the taking up. The laying down and the desire. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit. Here's my list I love. All malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Desire. Let's talk about that desire first for just a moment. This word desire in Greek is exactly the same word as the word for lust. Same word in Greek. If you were reading this as a Greek, it would be no different word that you read desire and lust. In fact, it, some versions even indicate it's a strong desire, which is what the definition of lust is. What makes something a good, strong desire and an evil lust is not the desire, not the strength of the desire. It's the object of the desire that makes one a lust and one a good desire. You know, the, the uh, a lot of Oriental, I can't say that, a lot of Eastern philosophers, including some of the, peop, some of the uh, Greeks and some of the Jews, 
thought that the way that you live a happy life is that you just kill all your desire. This is what the teaching of Buddha was and why, why these yogas seem so impassionate about everything. You learn to kill all passion. Just kill all desire. Don't desire anything. So they didn't desire good food. They became stoics. They didn't, whatever the case may be, they just stopped. They tried to kill desire because desire was the problem of the human nature. And, it, and some Christians have this idea. They want to live in a monastery with no other people and don't talk and, and eat bad food and, ha, and have no possessions so they can kill all their desires. Desire's not the problem. What you desire is the problem. And that goes back to the flesh, the self-desire, desires of your own heart, which are for self-satisfaction. But he says what you're to desire or lust for is the pure milk of the word as a baby. So as the baby strongly desires its mother's milk, which is the perfect food for that baby to grow, exactly meant to nourish that child the way it should be nourished then you need to desire God's word that same way. And it, it's two things. It is a constant, urgent desire, uh, and it is regular, repeated. It never goes away. It doesn't just get satisfied overnight. One thing will not satisfy that desire of a baby for its mother's milk. One feeding won't do it. It may satisfy it temporarily, but it's always going to come back. So this is a great picture of desiring the word of God and all the things with it is the, is the young child. But he says, lay aside all malice. Malice. That's evil intentions. In this case, we use a couple with actions. Malice is intending to hurt or harm someone else. Having an evil desire to hurt them. We say we don't believe in that, but we do try to hurt people in the things that we do. And we often have malice toward them. This is a this is a common feature of human culture, human societies, all the way back. It's a common feature. They're dominated by malice. I've never worked in an office setting, but I've been around enough people that have, and I've, I've watched The Office, so I'm an expert on this. I've watched a show called The Office, so who could be more of an expert? Uh, but offices, human society, is filled with malice, isn't it? Uh, you can see other dramas that have been written from Shakespeare down to the common soap opera, and you see that what they're based on is malice. What's the underlying theme of these shows? The one, in, the one ingredient in all of these human dramas that doesn't change over the centuries is malice. And malice is coupled with guile. That's the word for deceit. Guile. It's deception. And hiding your true intentions, hiding what you really say. I found this in at a church. I was trying to work, work with on a problem, and people I didn't know the people very well. And um, you know the the criticism that was given me by an older man. I was in my thirties then. Is that you know you uh, you're off, you you seem to think that people will tell you what they really mean. Speaking of church members now, you seem to think, and you're operating, and the reason you're having trouble is because you're operating under the idea that people are really going to tell you what they think. They're going to tell you what they really think, and they're going to tell you what they really mean. And you you just take them at their word. This was a criticism of me. Well, I was flabbergasted by that. 
And this was, an, this was an attempt to get me to begin to try to read double meanings into what people said, just like, you know who I found out who didn't take what people said at face value and who was operating this way? Guess who it was? Guess who it was? That It was him. And he was trying to get me to look at the situation the same way as him and realize that I had to, I had to reinterpret what people, so people, so what, I heard, I heard you say this, that's what you said, so what do you really mean? And they would come to me and say, well, I know this person said this, but what they really meant was this. Well, I said, okay, I may be young and ignorant and, and I may be idealistic, but we're not going to have that. If you say something, I'm going to take it that that's what you really mean, I'm going to hold you to it. And if I say something, you can try to hold me to that because that's what I should really mean. But none of this in the church of people, I have to interpret what you really mean by what you say. This won't work in a family, a business, a church, or anywhere else. But it's what this is about. This is what human society is. It's why they can't function well so many times. Why do we have so many laws and everywhere I walk, I can walk 10 feet, i got to get my ID out and produce it for somebody else. Okay, every 10 feet I got to throw my ID and I got to prove who I am and, and so forth. And it's still, and those are crooks, to, the crooks are demanding that of me because they don't trust each other. The people that write the, the security programs, the people that operate the security companies are just as much crooks as everybody else. Aren't they? Why do we think they're more pure than everybody else? But they want you to give them your data because they don't trust anybody. Because they shouldn't probably because we're all a bunch of liars. And crooks and cheats. Nobody just does what they say they should do with good intentions and operates. But and when you live that way, you get punished for it. So this this is one of my pet peeves. I, I guess you can tell. Everywhere you go, pop out the ID. And guess what? About every tenth person probably has in their pocket a fake ID. So there you go. Guess who gets to control the records that have the IDs and what they, somebody that's not honest gets to control that or redefine everything. So we live in a world of deceit. We live in a world of deceit and malice. And, and so this is what, this is what Augustine said about this. I'll tell you in advance when Augustine wrote this. It was about the year 380 or 390 AD. So this is not a new human problem. He says here that malice and all the others are inconsistent with the love of the brethren unto which you have been purified your souls. It's inconsistent with love of the brethren. The vices here are those which offend against brotherly love. Each succeeding one springs out of that which immediately precedes it. So as to form a genealogy of the sins against love. That's what he calls this. This is a genealogy. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they begat so-and-so. This is a genealogy of the sins against love. Out of malice springs guile or deceit. Out of guile, hypocrisies. That is, pretending to be what we are not and and not showing what we really are. Pretend to be something that you're not and not showing what you really are. That's the hypocrisies. The opposite of love unfeigned, or love unfaked, unfeigned, as the Bible talks about it, or without dissimulation. Dissimulation is speaking with a forked tongue, as they used to say here in North America. Two things coming out of the same mouth. Or one statement that can be interpreted two ways, and you always interpret it the worst way. 
Out of hypocrisies, envies of those to whom we think ourselves obliged to pay the, play the hypocrite. Out of envies, evil speaking. We envy somebody, we speak evil of them. Malicious, envious detraction of others. Guile is the permanent disposition. Our society lives with a permanent disposition of deceit everywhere you go. So, bought something on Amazon the other day. Didn't fit. Going to return. I returned it. They said they'd take the money, the money back, take it back. So I got to go to Kohl's and hand it back in. Now, I'm one of these people that take everything, save it all. I put all the wrap ties back on stuff, put it back in the original packaging as much as I don't just rip it open. I try to put it all back like it was, put it back in the box, take it back over there. Uh, and they open it up and they, somebody opens it up and says, what kind of a nut did this? I'm sure the guy, why, why does a guy, somebody's going to open that package up someday and they're going to look at that and they're going to try to figure out what to do with it and they're going to say, he's a nut. Why are they saying that? Because they deal with guile all the time. We, we went, to, we bought a blind for the bedroom in Walmart. Supposed to be so big. So it's been sitting there for a month or two and finally got to put it up the other day. Take it out of the box. It doesn't fit at all. It, it doesn't fit. Most of the hardware is gone. When I got to looking at it, I realized it's in the original box that fits. I looked at the box. Did I buy the wrong one? Nope, bought the right one. Somebody took the blind off their window, took the good one out, put the new one up with all the hardware, put the other stuff that they could find back in the box, took it back to Walmart. They, Walmart doesn't care. They wrapped it back up and sold it back to me. So I took it back to Walmart and said, you know, this is not what it says in the box. Just so you know. But I didn't, it's what I found in the box when I opened it. And they said, okay, we'll take it. You know why they say, okay, we'll take it. You know why? Because they know everybody's a cheat. That's why they do that. They expect to be cheated. They get cheated out of hundreds of thousands of dollars at every store every year because we're cheats. We want to be proud Americans. Proud Christians do this very same thing. This is the natural disposition of deceit. We Christians, I don't care if people call you crazy. I don't care if nobody else does it. You need to be honest. And if you break, you take something out of the box that's perfectly good and you break it, you got to think twice about what you're going to do with that now. You broke it. Now, sometimes I've taken that, you know what, I broke this. And they say, okay. Or they say, Sorry. Whatever it is, is. I go up to the counter, take it back. I say, look, I bought this. Doesn't fit. Will you take it back or won't you? And I tell them very clearly, whatever you do is fine with me. Easy to say when it costs $3.95 and not $395. I understand that. But still... Do you live a life of guile and deceit? Guile is the permanent disposition. Hypocrisies is, is the act flowing from it. The guileless no don't no no envy. If you have if you are guileless, you don't have this deceit built into you, then you don't you don't live in envy. You're sincere. You're true all the way through. Malice, delight in another one's hurt. Envy Pines, a good happening to somebody else. Guile imparts duplicity to the heart. Duplicity is 
can't ever decide what really your motivation is, and so forth. He goes on. This is from 350 A.D. Describes our culture perfectly. Why? Because God wrote these words. That's why they're true then. They're true now. They always will be true. And they are a measuring stick how we can look as Christians at our culture. But he says, you put aside this way of living. Lay aside malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, evil. They all come from one another. We could talk long enough. And desire the pure milk of the word which doesn't treat any of this this way. Christ's character and his life as the basis, it shows us a way to live and to think, which calls us to be better than we once were and then grow thereby. So that's the lesson today. I know we're going to stop, but I have time to stop, and I appreciate your attention to these things. And so we have to decide, in, are we willing to lay it aside? This is the whole call of Christianity. This is why it appeals to some people in the world. You, we, can, we can preach the gospel for a hundred more years. And this appeal to lay aside sin or to repent and turn to the gospel will appeal to some and others not. It doesn't appeal to most, as we said a couple weeks ago or maybe last week, because they don't like the word sin in the first place. Nobody's a sinner. We all have a syndrome. So nobody can handle that. But if you are one of the kind of person who understands that, yes, I'm guilty of doing wrong and I need to be saved from that, then the gospel can help you. The good news of Christ is he can help you with that. Not just forgive the sin, but then through the word impart to you a whole new way of thinking and living that can bring joy and peace and satisfaction no matter what's happening around you and what's going on. You can have that life. And I hope that's what you desire because if it is, the gospel is for you. Can we hear your confession of belief in Christ this morning? Will you come forward and let us hear that confession? Will you repent and turn away from your wrong? Will you Are you willing to be buried and baptized in water and have your sins forgiven? Then you can become a Christian and start that new way of life. We'll, we'll help you do that this morning. God will forgive and God can lift you back up. If so, you come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.